You are listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Morning. Good morning, Anthem Church. How are you? Woo! Memorial Day weekend, all right. No? All right, I'm happy I don't have to work tomorrow. Maybe you guys are, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> My name's Todd. Um, excited to be here this morning. It's a fun time of year. Uh, it's graduations all over. A coworker of mine just had their, their son had fifth grade graduation on Friday. Uh, friend Danny here is, is down from Waterloo, uh, where Candeo Church was that helped plant this church uh, for a uh, graduation from high school. There's college graduation, all kinds of graduations happening. Fun time of year. Um, and actually, one of my favorite days in my entire life that I vividly remember and I cherish in my heart is the day I walked off Iowa State University campus. I handed in that last assignment and all the weight of four years of pressure just melted off me. I, and I can vividly remember walking off down the, you know, down the, the paved road, just down to the commuter lot <laughs> where my car was parked, just walking down and being like, oh, like, it's all the weight is gone. You can't test me ever again. <laughs> Whatever you give me on this last assignment is it. We're done. <laughs> no more tests. I'm not going to have to think about it, be tested, go into that pressure ever again. And I left Iowa State, and then I graduated, and, and I still have warm feelings about Iowa State. I, I like Iowa State. I look back on it warmly. I, I have T-shirts that say Iowa State on them. You know, like I still affiliate with, you know, Iowa State. I, uh, I have warm feelings about it. I still cheer for them. Um, if not, if they're not playing the Hawkeyes. Sorry, Stan, I know, I'm sorry. That's not, you guys don't care about that, but Stan cares deeply about that. <laughs> like he tries his best to, to think of me as a cyclone because I graduated from there, even though I cheer for the Hawkeyes because it would just do too much to his heart <laughs> to know that I cheered for the Hawkeyes. Um, but I still affiliate with Iowa State. I love Iowa State, but I'm not taking any more of their tests. Right? I used to answer their emails, I used to answer their phone calls because we had business to transact because I hadn't graduated, but I'm graduated now. You don't get to call me anymore. <laughs> like, Paige can attest to it. For some reason, they have her number, thank God. <laughs> so when she sees it, she's like, Iowa State's calling again. I was like, hang it up. <laughs> like, ignore. Like, we're done. <laughs> I graduated. I have a piece of paper that says we're done. I don't need you anymore. Get away from me. All, all you want is money now. <laughs> But you don't get to test me. And if you called me and said, hey, we actually you know, have some tests for you, you'd be like, nope, I'm done. I have a piece of paper. You don't get to do that. And I think if we're not careful, we can start to see our faith life that way. We can start to see our relationship with God as though it's a graduation. And so for some of us, we look back and we think about the time that we graduated. We, we came forward during a sermon in response and said, just as I am, Lord, like that's me. Or we, we are at church camp and we nailed our sins to a cross you know, some, some summer night with a bunch of strangers that we got to know really well for that one week. We promised we'd never lose touch, and I can't remember any of their names. <laughs> like, but we, we, we can view our faith as like it, though it were a graduation. And so we did that thing once. I did the big thing. I repented of sin. I did the faith move. I did it all. And I still have warm feelings. I wear the T-shirt. It says, you know, three nails, one cross, four given. You know, I got, I got the T-shirt. You know, I, I still have warm feelings about church. I still love Jesus. I still love God. I, I would even attend some of the games, you know. I cheer for him. I cheer for, go G Jesus, Team Jesus. But I think about it that way. And, and so if we're not careful, we can start to view our faith as though we've graduated from the Christian faith. And it's something that largely is in the past. And we still have warm feelings about it, but, but all the faith of it is really kind of, is a story that we tell about the days gone by, something that we did. 
in the past is where our faith lies. And we're certainly not going to be taking any more tests. God, I graduated. I passed the test. I felt bad. I repented. I confessed my faith. And now I'm graduated. I don't, no more tests. Like, I'm done with that, right? Just like the way I was done with Iowa State. But look what 1 Peter says. We're going to be in Genesis 22 today, so I'm going to have verses outside the text up on the screen for you. So 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Look what he says. He starts off by saying, Beloved. So he's talking to people who are Christians, people who would confess that they are Christians. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Christian, don't be surprised when you have more tests. Don't, don't approach it and be like, hey, I graduated, God. Why are you giving me more tests? I thought I passed that thing already. Why are you testing me? Peter's saying, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when there are more tests because the Christian faith is not graduation. It's more like continuing education. Like there's always something to learn. There's always something to grow in. You're never done. You don't graduate from faith school and then move on to the rest of life. But that, that doesn't happen. That's not how it works. If you're a Christian, you are in school. If you're a Christian, you're in school right now, and God is your teacher, and there are lessons, and you should expect tests. Good teachers give their students tests because tests reveal hidden things. That's what tests are for. Like, you don't know the thing, so you test it, and then you find out what you have. You find out what they've retained. You find out if the automobile is up to spec, if it can survive a crash. So people test things. Automobile manufacturers test their vehicles. You test it to find out what's hidden, to see if it actually works, if it's actually there. And so if you are a Christian, you are in school. And so Peter's saying, don't be surprised by this. Just embrace it. Just accept the fact that you're in school and prepare for the next test. Don't resent it. Don't wish for a world where they didn't have to happen. Just don't view yourself as a graduate. View yourself as in school, and God is your teacher, and you're showing up ready to learn. So if anybody that we've studied so far in Genesis would see themselves as a graduate, you would think maybe Abraham would, right? Like if anybody could probably see themselves that way, I mean, he moved his entire life from everything he knew because God said so. That's a big faith move. That's a big test, and I passed that. And then I, you know, he met with God multiple times. He's seen him in person. He's, just, he's talked with him. He, he bargained with him over, the, over, over Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talked with God. He's met with him multiple times. He's had multiple run-ins with God. He has, we saw last week, he actually received the son that he believed he would have. By faith, he actually received Isaac. He actually got the thing that God promised, and he stuck with it, and he wrote it out, and now he has his son. And at the end of the last chapter of Genesis 21, we actually see that life is like settling down for Abraham now, right? He has his wife. He has his kid. He has a house. And the last thing we see in Genesis 21 is he plants a tree. You don't plant a tree if you plan on moving anytime soon. You plant a tree because you want to see your grandkids swing on that thing someday. Like, we're here. I'm settled down. All the, all the passion and excitement of faith and stuff is kind of, okay, we did that. We graduated. Time for settling down. Let's just ride it out. Me, you, and our kid, and our future grandkids, and this is where we live now. This is our plot of land. I'm going to watch this tree grow and watch my life take root. I'm anchored now. And if anybody could feel graduated, it's Adam, or uh, Abraham, sorry. Planting a tree is a sign of that. But this morning, we're going to see that school's still in session. So if you're in Genesis 22... Start with verse 1. After these things, so after all this happened, after all these things that Abraham's been through, and he's finally settled down, and he's planted a tree, and he's settled down, after all these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. 
When you were in class, one of the first things the teacher does, at least back in my day, I don't know if they do anymore, they would take roll call. And they would call it the name. Todd, here. You raise your hand, right? If you're here, if you're present or present, present, if you've seen the video. Um, those of you who haven't, don't worry about it. It's not that important. But you, you, you roll call and you say, I'm here. And this is the first thing that this is, and actually this is the first test. Are you available? Do you, would you hear God if he called you? If he called on your name, would you raise your hand and say, I'm here? Like, are you here? Are, would you hear God if he called? Are you easy to get a hold of? Or are you really complicated? Are you so tied up with things and so many distractions that, that God would have a hard time getting a hold of you? He would have to do something very dramatic in your life for you to pay attention. And by his grace, for some of you, he's done that in the past, right? You've been really distracted, and he had to do something very dramatic, very loud to get your attention because you weren't going to hear if he didn't. Are you easy to get a hold of? When you're in class, you raise your hand and say, here I am, here I am. But when you raise your hand, it's always a little bit of a risk, right? If the teacher's, like, if the teacher's asking the question, who's here today? Who, who would like to answer a question? Who would like to do it? You raise your hand, and you're like, you're kind of putting yourself at the mercy of what, what's the teacher going to ask me? Because I just raised my hand in front of the whole class. I'm here. What's going to happen next? Look at verse 2. He, God, said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, for some of you, you're like, This is why I don't raise my hand. This is why I don't read my Bible. I suspect it's going to tell me to do stuff that I don't want to do. I don't want to raise my hand. This is why I don't go to church. I just knew God was going to point out that thing. I knew it. That's why I don't raise my hand. That God is, is, is a wild card. Who knows what he's going to ask me to do? And for some of you, it's not that you don't know. It's, it's not that you're putting yourself at risk. It's that you know exactly what he's going to ask. You know what the thing is, and that's why you don't read your Bible. That was me. I had, I knew, I had, my mom was like, you think God wants you talking like that? I was not a great kid, because <laughs> I talked, I, was, I wasn't a sailor, but I could have been one. Like, they would have, you know, grandfathered me in based on my mouth alone. No, no, no thing about boats, but the language, we're, we're, up, we're up to speed, guys. I'll figure the boat part out later. Um, so, like, I, that was me. Like, you, want, you think God wants you talking like that? No. And I, highly, and I highly suspect if I read my Bible, I'd find that out. But I don't want to read it because I don't want to know for a fact that he doesn't. I just want to assume that it's fine. So I didn't read. So maybe you don't read your Bible because you know what the thing is. And so you stay away from it. Because at church, that might be the sermon that day. Or that might be the passage in the Bible that you open to that day. So you avoid it. You don't want to, to, to find out because you know the exact thing. Because when you say like Abraham did, when you say, here I am, when you say, here I am, what you're saying is, I am here. All of me. Here it all is. My life, my hopes, my dreams, my ambitions, the future I wanted, the future I thought I was going to have. All of it is here, God. None of it's out of bounds. It's all yours. Whatever you want to do, whatever you ask, it's all in play. So when you say, here I am, what you mean is all of me is here. At your disposal, God, what do you want? You are God. Whatever you want, I'm willing to give. And for Abraham, God puts his finger on the thing that Abraham's been waiting his whole life for. The one thing that he wanted to finally feel settled down was the son, a son whom he could pass on his name, his family, his inheritance. No longer will Eliezer inherit his whole fortune. 
His son will, somebody who bears his name and has his eyes, somebody who has that same hitch in their giddy-up like he has, somebody who can carry on the family traditions, Isaac, and God puts his finger on that thing. This is the thing that you've been putting all your hope in, Isaac, and it's a great godly thing to have a kid. It's great, but it's not God, Abraham, and he puts his finger on it, and you can imagine the terror of Abraham hearing this because God never asks for halves. He didn't say, Abraham, give me half your heart. We'll call it good. Give me half your something. Give me half your other thing. God doesn't ask for halves. When he asks for something, he asks for all of it. Whatever the thing is, he asks for the whole thing. And Abraham knows that the stakes are high. Abraham doesn't look to the diploma on the wall and say, God, you don't have the right to do this. We're done. I passed those tests. I passed your tests. You don't get to do this to me anymore. Abraham sees himself as a student, and yet the lessons are hard. They are weighty. Graduation, if you have that mentality, looks to the diploma and says, God, we don't get to do this. Faith looks to God. Faith looks to God and says, I don't know what the tests are going to be, but I'm going to take them because you're a good teacher. And our series is titled Introducing God. One of the things we're going to see this morning is God is a good teacher. And a good teacher gives tests but a good teacher wants you to pass them. He wants you to pass. He's not giving you tests so that he can watch you fall. He's giving you tests because he wants you to pass them. So Abraham sees himself as a student. He trusts God as his teacher. And so look at verse 3. This is where most of us kind of, we can maybe identify with Abraham in some degree. We're like, oh, I've had that moment where God put his finger on the thing, and I knew that it was the most important thing, and it had to go. But like, this is where a lot of us like, lose track with Abraham. Look at, look at Abraham's response to this. Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. This is where most of us are like, I don't know what, Abraham is like superhuman. To be like, give me your son. Okay, I'll set my alarm for 4 a.m. Let's get this thing going. Like, like you, you lose your ability to identify with him at this point. Because you're like, that's crazy. Like, why would you be that anxious or that excited to go do this? And I think Abraham is full of faith, but it, let's, let's think about it here. Like, I think it's possible, the scripture doesn't tell us, so this is a bit of speculation, but is it possible that he's not up early because he's so excited to go kill his son? Is it possible that he's been up all night in the first light, the first break of dawn, he's up because he's been up anyways and this thing is driving him crazy. Anybody have test anxiety? That's a thing now. <laughs> Anybody's like, well, I'm really smart except for when they test me on stuff. <laughs> except for when it comes to the part of showing people what I know. <laughs> I'm not very good at that. But you like, have the test anxiety. I think like, the test itself like, causes its own stress. Like, and you actually do know the stuff. But the test, like, it just brings it out of you. And you could be up the whole night before. You know the stuff you've studied, but you're anxious about the test. I think Abraham here is anxious. And this is just me speculating. I don't know. Like it's, it's, he's still full of faith, but I think he's anxious. And I think we can identify more with him. And the, the reason why I say that is, look, listen to this. Abraham is a wealthy man. He once took 318 guys to war with him. He has a large household. He's wealthy. He could have somebody chop wood for him. He has somebody who's in charge of the horses or the donkeys. Like He doesn't need to be doing this stuff. But he's up at the crack of dawn, saddling his own donkey, chopping his own wood. 
because his hands are anxious. You guys ever do anybody's like that when you're anxious? You put your hands to work, puts your mind at ease. You know, just do the dishes, vacuum, just whatever it is, you put yourself to work because you, it settles your brains for a moment. Like you just got to put yourself to work. And I think Abraham's in a place where he's doing stuff to take his mind off of what it's about to happen. But it's also because this is personal. If Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac, he's the one who's going to have to do it. He can't, say, he can't say, God, you want Isaac? Okay, I'll have one of my servants go take him to the mountain and do it for me. This is going to have to be personal. Abraham's hands are going to have to be involved in this. And so he wants to be involved in it, but he also, like, the anxiety of having to do it. And, and the trip to Moriah itself is a 50-mile journey. It's 50 miles on foot or on a donkey with this group of people. So the, the trip itself is a test. It's a three-day journey, we find out, 50 miles three days, and when he gets to the edge of where he's going, he can see Moriah in the distance, and it says he lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, if you've been following along, what Luke's pointed out multiple times, and we've seen this in Genesis, anytime you see this phrase, somebody lifts up their eyes, Moses, through writing Genesis, is training you. Whenever you see that, you should think, uh-oh. Anytime somebody looks up their, lifts up their eyes and sees something, a big decision is about to have to be made, and every time we've seen people make the wrong choice. Eve lifted up her eyes and saw the fruit looked good, so she ate it. The sons of God looked at the daughters of Eve, and you want to know, they are attractive. And they married people they had no business marrying. Lot looked up and saw the land that Sodom and Gomorrah was beautiful, so he moved closer. Every time we've seen people lift up their eyes, we've seen them make the wrong decision. And when we do this in our own lives, when we lift up our eyes, it's not just looking at stuff. We all do that. That's what our eyes do, by the way. They look at stuff. Lifting up your eyes is when you pay particular attention to something. Like, like you're, you're caught up in the business of life and then something catches your attention, some idea, some person, some relationship, and you pay particular attention to it. That's what lifting up your eyes is. You focus on it in a different way. Of, than just seeing it, you're actually zeroing in. Whenever that happens, there's a decision that's about to have to be made. What are you going to do with that thing? How does that thing fall in line with your relationship with God? And so Abraham has a decision to make. He's lifted up his eyes and he's seen the place from afar. Three days is a long time to second guess yourself. Did God really say, sacrifice your son Isaac? Did God really say, or is this, this is all just about the symbolism, right? All, par- all the parents, open your hands and put your, put your kids in your hands and send them off to God, symbolically. I mean, keep them at home. <laughs> Don't actually send them to be sacrificed, but symbolically, set them free, hand them over to God. No, this is, this is really having to do it, seeing the place from afar. So what's going to happen with Abraham here? Look at verses 5 through 8. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac was a sharp kid. It's like, Something is missing at this table. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. Now you can imagine at this point, like, what is going through Abraham's head? Is this actually happening? Like, is this real life? Is this really about to happen? Am I about to, to give up my most precious, beloved son, Isaac? And luckily, if you read your Bibles, the Bible tells you what's going through Abraham's head. We, we fast forward to Hebrews. I'll have it on the screens for you, 11, 17 through 19. We can actually 
look inside Abraham's head. What's going on in his head at this very moment, this moment of crisis? It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham is thinking, God has promised that my family will go on through Isaac. God said, go to Moriah and sacrifice Isaac. I am going to kill Isaac and watch him be raised from the dead. Because I know all those things. God said, take him and sacrifice him. God said, it's through him that the promises are coming. My only logical conclusion is that God wants me to kill him and watch him be raised from the dead. I'm going to sacrifice him and get the thing back. The resurrection is going to happen. I'm going to get the very thing back that I sacrificed. That's his only conclusion. And that is a huge faith move. Because he's believing what God has said. He's just believing what God has said. God said through Isaac. God said sacrifice Isaac. My only conclusion is that I'm going to get it back because he said it has to go through him. So Abraham relies on all the unknowns of this situation by relying on the things he does know. You find yourself in unknown situations. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. Faith looks to what you do know already. What has God said that I know for sure? Anytime you're feeling confused, baffled, you're, you're overwhelmed by the unknowns, take a moment and think about what you do know. Think about what God has said that you know for sure and are certain and let those guide you through the unknowns. And so when Abraham says to these young men, we'll be back, he actually means it. He really thinks that he's going to be back with Isaac. He's not just saying it like to throw them off the scent because he's trying to get away with murder. <laughs> like he's, he's, he's like, oh, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're just going to sacrifice. Where's the ram? Don't worry about it. <laughs> like he actually believes they're going to be back. He actually believes that. His faith believes that him and Isaac are coming back. But that's all good in theory, right? It's all good in symbolism, but like theories have to be tested. Theories have to be tested in order to be proven. Look at verses 9 through 14. Here's where the drama reaches its fever pitch. Isaac and Abraham climbing this mountain, him, the son with the wood on his back, the father with the fire and the knife. Because not only does he have to kill him, he has to burn him. It's crazy. Like, you read the instructions. Sacrifice him and then burn him as a burnt offering. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Abraham does the last thing that he heard God say, and he's in the act of doing that very thing when God gives him instructions on the next thing. Now realize in that moment how much faith it took for Abraham to get to the place where he is standing over his son with a knife, looking down at his son, ready to do the thing that God has asked. 
And he hears a voice mercifully cry out, Abraham! And he stops. And, you know how much, and in that moment, how much faith it took to hear God and listen. You know how much, how much work it would take to get yourself riled up enough to actually be ready to kill your son? Like how much of rah-rah, like how much commitment it would take to actually get to that place? And then in that moment to pause and listen. Like once you're in that point of commitment, you're just blinders on. I have to do this thing. I can't listen to anything else. But God interrupts him and stops him and says, Abraham, now I know that you fear God. Now, God knows that he would have plunged it down. He knows. God knows the future. He knows what Abraham was about to do. And he stops him and says, I know that you love me, that you have not withheld the most important thing in your life from me, which means that I am most important to Abraham. I see now that I am your number one. And for the third time in our passage, Abraham says, here I am. First time God says, roll call, Abraham, where are you at? Here I am. The second time we see he's climbing up the hill and his son cries out to him, dad, here I am, my son, I'm with you. And the third time now, God calls out, Abraham, again, Abraham's response is, here I am. Is your habit of saying, here I am? When God calls out, is that your habit? When people around you call out to you, are you there? Are you available to them? Is it your habit to say, here I am, all of me at your disposal? And Abraham gets to see firsthand how committed he really was to God. And we see here that it looks like maybe God learned something. Like, does God, not, does God have to test people because he doesn't know how these things go? Like, it sounds like it, right? It says, for now I know that you fear God. Was God in suspense? He's like, ooh, I wonder what's going to happen. Cliffhanger. I guess I'm watching a whole other season of that show to find out what happens. Is God just like tuning in? Just like, oh man, this is crazy. Is he going to do it? <laughs> no, because first of all, he stops him and he credits his account as though he has done it. He knows how it's going to end. But second of all, God is a good teacher, right? That's what I've introduced to you. So you imagine you're in school, you have your teacher and it says two plus question mark equals six. And you pose it to the class. Okay, what's the question mark? Let's solve for the question mark. What is two plus question mark equals six? What is it? That's right, yeah. Yeah. That learning's doing you good. <laughs> but listen, if you're a good teacher, what do you do? You say, well, we need to solve for the question mark, so we need to move the two over here so we can get the question mark by itself. So let's move the two over here, but it becomes a negative over here now because we moved it to the other side of the equation. So now it's six minus two. And what is six minus two? Four. So now we know, now we know that the question mark is four. Now we know that. Did the teacher not know that before she did the math? The teacher didn't need to do the dramatic, let's move Mr. Two over here, and let's make him. But they do it so that you can learn. The teacher didn't need to do the math. The teacher knew the question mark. God knows the question marks. He's not waiting to see what happens with us. He knows. But he's doing this as a good teacher would, and he's saying, now we all know. Now I know that, see, when I do the equation this way, now I know the question mark is four. But God knew all along. He's speaking the way that a good teacher would help a kid along and help him feel like, I'm with you through this learning process. Aren't we learning? Isn't learning fun? Isn't school great? <laughs> Keep coming back to class and raising your hand when roll call happens. See, the lessons are hard sometimes, but they're valuable. Now we all know something. So Abraham knew somewhat of his faith. I think he realized how deeply his faith went. God didn't learn anything. He knew it was going to happen. But who did learn a valuable lesson here? Who, who walked into this not knowing much about anything? 
Isaac, he didn't even know where the ram was. <laughs> He's like, uh, I can do some math. <laughs> Knife, wood. <laughs> what are we killing? <laughs> like, what are we doing? Because if, if something doesn't die, no sacrifice has taken place. Something has to die. If nothing dies up there, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And Isaac learns something valuable about God and how valuable he is. And Isaac learns about his dad's faith. Parents, listen to me. If you have kids, the most important thing your kids need to see is how much you love God. They need you to love God in front of them so they can see just how valuable God is to you. And that might look like you're choosing things that they wouldn't choose because you're not making the kid the center of the family because the kid doesn't run the house. God runs the house. I answer to him, and when I do that in front of you, we all learn how valuable he is, not just in theory, but in actuality. If your house is oriented around the kid, they'll never learn how valuable God is. They will think that they are God and that it's your job as a parent to serve them and meet their every, every little need. But they are not God. God is God of the house, and parents do that. Look at, we hear this, this ask, and it sounds severe, and it's like, well, yeah, you can write that off to classic Old Testament God. He always says stuff like that. You know, of course, when you raise your hand, Old Testament God's going to be like, well, why don't you kill your son? Because he's just, like, severe and, like, callous, apparently, to stuff like that. But no, look at, first of all, he's not callous. He's a good teacher. Second of all, that's a false claim. Look at the New Testament. Jesus says stuff like this, and Jesus is the long-haired, you know, uh, carrying the sheep on his back, you know, lovey-dovey guy. So if you want to, anybody's going to say stuff like this that doesn't match, look at what Jesus says himself. If that's your picture of Jesus, that he would never say hard things, look at what Luke 14, verse 26 says. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus telling you to, like, throw shade at your whole family? Like, what you need to do if you want to be my disciple is get a Facebook account and just light every family member you've ever met up. Just every little thing that you can figure out that's horrible about them, just point that out to everybody else. He's not saying that. He's not saying you actually need to hate them, like actively pursue ways to make them feel bad. He's saying, in comparison to me, everything else is second. If I am not first, you cannot be my disciple. To be my disciple means that I am first. If you want to worship Jesus, he needs to be number one. And that will inform how you love your wife and kids and honor your father and mother, actually. It'll actually improve those relationships. If you put your mother or father or children or brother or wife ahead of God, it will actually ruin that relationship because it's not meant to work that way. It can't sustain the weight of that. No person can be God to you. It's too much for one person to handle. Put things in their right order, God first, everybody else below, and those relationships will actually improve because God will now be the one telling you how to love your wife, how to honor your father and mother, how to be a good child. People don't need you to be Jesus for them. They need you to need Jesus in front of them. They need you to need that. Your kids don't want to be your Jesus. They want to see you needing Jesus because that's something we can all do together. We can all need Jesus and pursue him together. And God, like a good teacher, wants to go over tests. He doesn't just give tests and then throw it at you, and then he wants to do a debrief. Let's get together. Let's huddle up and talk about how it went. And so look at verses 15 through 19. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand 
that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men with Isaac, just like he said he would, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. God likes giving out good grades. Some of you walked in here today with this idea that God has a big red marker, and it's his greatest joy in life to look over your life and just mark it up. Does not meet. Does not meet. Does not meet. F minus. <laughs> like, some of you, like, think that God likes that. Like, he, like, it's his greatest joy to point out all your flaws. Like, he exists just as a heavenly auditor. And just, he loves when you screw up because he gets like, oh, my red pen. I love my red pen. It's so much fun. Fail. Try again. Be better. Like, you need to get rid of that idea of God. He is not like that. He is a good teacher. He wants you to pass the tests. He's given you his Holy Spirit to help you. He's given you the example of his son Jesus to show you the right way. He's given the sacrifice of his son Jesus to atone for where you fall short. God is a good teacher. He wants to see you pass. He wants to keep giving you lessons because he's, he knows that you're not done yet. Anybody here done yet? Anybody graduated from life? Just crushing it everywhere? You should write the book for all the rest of us to read and just do what you do and we'd be better off. I think in our worst moments, we may feel that way, right? Like, I had that conversation with one of my kids the other day. They were, they were, you know, getting mouthy, and I'm like, you kind of are talking like as though if you were in charge of the world, everything would be better. And they're like, it would be. <laughs> and I was like, you sound like Satan right now. <laughs> right? That sounds familiar. We're, that's not coming from heaven. That, that logic is not coming down from above. It's coming down from below. If I was in charge, things would be better. I would do a better job of running this ship than you do. I don't like the way your world works. That's satanic. <laughs> and we all do it, so we can all repent of it. But we can't get rid of it by pretending it's not what it is. We are not in charge, and that's a very good thing. God is a good teacher. He still has lessons for us. We still have a lot to learn. And if we approach our faith as though we are students at the feet of a good teacher, he will teach us and we will grow and we will learn things. Verses 20 through 24, we're not going to go over in detail. They basically foreshadow Rebecca, who's going to be important um, when we pick up again in the fall, because God just told Isaac that your family needs to go through him. He's going to be the one that carries on the name, which means Isaac's going to have to get married. Because otherwise, the, Isaac is the last bulb on the circuit. But he needs to have kids so that the, the promise can continue to go. So in order to do that, he's going to need a wife. And so the last verses of uh, 20 through 24 of chapter 22 foreshadow Rebecca, who's going to show up later. She will be Isaac's wife. But let's, let's just end our time here by thinking about how well we're doing on the tests that God's been giving to us. How have you been doing on the tests that God's been giving to you? Have you been living like you're a graduate like, like your, your primary move is to look back on the diploma and say, I did the big faith thing. I had the passionate, tear-filled response thing. I did that once. That's why, that's why I feel good about kind of being vanilla right now. That's why I feel good about hitting ignore when I see that call. God, pff, voicemail. If it's important, you'll leave a message. Or just delete that email. I'm sure, like, I get tons of those. God's always wants something. Doot, doot, doot. Exactly. Is that where you've been living? You've been living that way? Have you gotten in the habit of pressing ignore? Like that's your habit now? It's like I, I feel the push of God and like I, my move is to just push that away. I don't like it. Ignore. Make that go away. And that, that's why I don't read my Bible. That's why I stay away from connection group. 
gets too real. I start to realize exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, and I don't really want that at life right now because my faith is in the past. I'm a graduate. We're good. Or have you been working really hard, studying, doing a good job? Like, like you've been a good student. You've been trying your best to learn the lessons that God's been, been putting in front of you, and you're preparing for the next test. You don't know what it is, when it's coming, but you're preparing for it. Or are you in the middle of a difficult test right now? You are being tested at this moment. And it's hard for you even to come here this morning. You want to be here. You want to hear from God. But you have enough stuff going on already to have one more thing piled on you. And you're already feeling like you're in the middle of a test and it's hard. Or maybe you've even recently just flunked a big exam. Like, I had a test and I know I blew it. And you're feeling the weight of that. There's all kinds of spectrum on where we're at with tests. Maybe there's a big test in your past that you failed and you still feel bad that you didn't pass that test. You failed. The good news of our passage this morning is that it is not about Abraham and Isaac. It is definitely a story about Abraham and Isaac, but of all the stories in Genesis that point us forward to something more than just them, this one is a very glaring arrow. It's an obvious arrow to Jesus. Of all the places you can find Jesus in the Old Testament, and he's really there, this one is an obvious connection to it. And the good news for us in our testings is that this is not about Abraham and Isaac. It's about God. It's about Jesus. He's the main character of this book. Jesus was a long-awaited son, just like Abraham waited a long time for Isaac. He waited patiently. History waited for Jesus to come. And when he came, just like Isaac, he put the wood on his back. Just like Isaac carried the wood of his own altar up the hill, Jesus carried his own cross up a hill. And Mount Moriah is modern-day Jerusalem. It's exactly where it is. The same son who walked under the weight and confusion of, Dad, what's going to happen? Thousands of years later, was carried by a son who knew exactly why he was doing what he was doing. He knew that he was the lamb. He knew that he was the sacrifice that was going to be on this altar. He was carrying his own cross, and his father watched. His father was with him through all of it, just like Abraham was with Isaac. The father was with his son. And this time, however, when the sacrifice came, when the, when the knife was raised, there was no one there to say stop because there is no substitute for Jesus. You can take Isaac off the altar and put a ram there and substitute it just fine. Something has to die. And the ram can take Isaac's place, but who could take Jesus' place? No one could. So there was no voice that said stop. And the father drove the knife into the heart of his own son for the, for the sins of all those who would be on looking, so that those of us who have failed tests can say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I am forgiven because the son died on that instead of me, in my place, for my sin. God didn't say stop. God said, bring it down. And just like Abraham said, I'm going to watch my son be resurrected. That's the only thing I can imagine could happen here. Just like that, Jesus didn't stay dead. God put all the weight of all the sin of every person who's ever lived on him. And three days later, he rose clean of all of it. And he lives forever now to intercede on behalf of those who would turn to him. There is no substitute for Jesus. Make him number one in your life, and everything else will fall into place. But nothing else can take his place. Look at Romans 8.32. I'll leave you with this as we transition into a time of communion. Look at Romans 8.32 and the great promise and weight of this that it gives. God, he who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God took the most important, precious thing that he had and gave it up. So if he gave us that, how can we blame him? How can we accuse him of withholding anything from us? What could he withhold? He gave us his first and best. There's nothing left. There's nothing better he could give us than Jesus. And he gave that freely to anyone this morning who wants it. For any of you who felt like a graduate, and maybe it's time to, to re-enlist, to re-enroll and be like, I'm a student. I'm done with being a graduate. I need to sign up. I need to start reading my Bible, get in connection groups, start coming to church because God is a good teacher and I love him and I want him to teach me. I still have my diploma. I still remember that day at church camp where I gave my life to the Lord and it was a big day for me, but I'm not done and God's not done with me. I'm going to continue to pursue him, and I trust that he's going to continue to teach me as we go. So what we do this morning, we're going to respond with the time of communion. There's gluten-free at the two front tables here. And as the band plays, you can make your way to the table. And the body and the blood of the lamb that took our place is represented by the bread and the cup that is on the table before you. As you come, come confessing this test that you have failed. Come thinking about the test that you're in the middle of right now. Thank God, I need help. I need to hear from you. I'm here, my hands up. Here I am, Lord, all of me. The weight of all of me being here is a lot right now. Come confessing that. Come to this table confessing that you are not enough, that you have failed, that you've fallen short, and the son who carried his own cross up the hill and died in your place for your sin will atone for all your sins and give you hope for tomorrow, give you a reason to continue moving forward, knowing that God's not done with you yet. And so as you take a piece off the bread, knowing that it was his body that died in your place and dip it in the cup, which is the blood that was shed for your sin, knowing that there is no other substitute than this. So when you come this morning, come confessing, this is it for me. Nothing could substitute for this. There's nowhere else I could turn to, no other fountain that could do what this thing can do for me. What God has done for me is the only thing that will suffice for what I'm required to do. And I give myself freely to it, and leave with a heart ready to say, here I am. <clears throat> all of me, God, whatever you want, whenever, whatever, whenever. It's all for you. You are number one. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this clear picture of the gospel buried in an ancient text. Only 22 chapters in to the first book of the Bible, and we see a clear arrow pointing forward to what your plan for all of human history is to send your son to die in place of sinners so that we could be forgiven of putting things in front of you. God, we confess this morning that we have put other things in your place. We've oriented our lives and hearts and affections around things that are not you and we've given ourselves to lesser things. We confess that right now. We repent. You are right. <clears throat> You are right. We are wrong. We have not put things in the right order. We confess that. We confess that you are true and correct. And we come confessing and receiving your solution to that problem. Not to just feel bad or to beat ourselves up or to stay away from our Bibles or to stay away from church or to stay away from the communion table as we put ourselves in time out. We don't have the authority to, to discipline ourselves. We don't get to make that call because you say come to this table and receive forgiveness. You say it is finished. So I take you at your word. I don't self-impose restrictions on myself. I don't keep myself away from you. I come to you because you said, all who come to me, come to me. Give me your heavy loads and I will bear them for you. 
So come to these tables this morning, Lord. Help our hearts to come along with our bodies to take the bread, to receive the cup, to receive forgiveness, and to leave here with new hearts full of energy and hope to put you first in all things, trusting that as we do that, you are a good teacher who will teach us what we need to know. And it's in your holy and great name that we do these things. Amen.